<laughs> Hello. Hello. And welcome to another episode of Tacos and Tequila. I'm Peyton. I'm Sydney. And we definitely have another doozy today. It's a doozy. Another doozy. <laughs> We went with the lighter, like, not lighter, but, like, more lighthearted episodes, (laughs) uh, preparing for the rougher ones or, like, more intense ones, and this is one I've been saving, so I was like, well, we might as well just get this over with. (laughs) Just throw something dark in there. Yeah, I mean, my next one's a little more (laughs) lighthearted. All right, so there there is uh, light at the end of the tunnel then for us again. I'm trying to alternate, you know, like I'll do something really horrible and then I'll do like a cryptid or a ghost story, you know, alternate. Yeah, no, no. I think we've had a good um, rhythm going with those. So it's worked out pretty well. Because I was going really heavy on the serious, serious, serious things here for a minute and uh, (laughs) need need to give ourselves and uh, the listeners a break. Yeah, good to switch it up here and there. Yes. Is there anything you would like to add before we dive into it? No, I think uh, you're free to dive. Okay. So today we are going to discuss what is known as one of the most notorious children child killers in history, and specifically in the UK. I am going to do something a little different in how I kind of tell you the story and we'll bounce around a little bit, but I want to paint a picture of how the events unfolded for detectives and those in the surrounding area in Northeast England in 1968. On March 25th, 1968, four-year-old Martin Brown was found dead in an abandoned home in Scottswood a ward in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, which is located in northeast England. Obviously, this raised some eyebrows, but honestly, police and people took it for an unwanted accident. I'll say it first when I read that, I said, uh, how the hell is this an unwanted accident? But apparently, there was an empty bottle of pain pills found by the boy's body, and there was no apparent evidence of violence at the time. It was a known home that, although was abandoned, kids played in in the neighborhood quite often. And two older boys had stumbled upon his body when they were playing in the home. So it it seemed suspicious. And later on, it would be determined he was strangled. Interesting to add, a couple days later, the police did find notes that were left behind claiming that this person who left the notes killed Martin. But they took it for a prank and really did not follow up on it. The note said, we did murder Martin Brown and I murder so that I may come back and things like that. This was left in a nursery that was broken into at night a couple days after Martin's murder. And so they kind of just took it as like a morbid prank. A few weeks later, though, they would change their minds. On July 31st, 1968, only a little over a month later, Brian Howe, who was three at the time, was also found dead. This time his body left in an industrial area of the Scottswood region, 
where children would play frequently. Panic definitely began to set in for the neighbors at this point in time. Parents started keeping a watchful eye on their children, and police officially started to investigate this to find people and, and, you know, question them and see if there were witnesses or narrow down suspects. It would be determined that both children were strangled to death. Their necks had been squeezed tightly. For Brian, the murderer also cut Brian's hair, mutilated his legs and genitals with scissors, and carved the letter M into his abdomen with a razor blade. The broken pair of scissors was actually found left near his body. The police obviously were acting quickly to try and find the killer, and so they started by trying to assess any possible suspects. During this time, they decided to question all the children in the area on these recent cases, thinking that they might be linked and thinking that the children might have some information. Also, fun fact, the coroner report for Brian's murder showed that there was a lack of force used, which implied it might have been committed by another child, which really intrigued the detectives to kind of lean in this way. However, two children acted quite suspicious while they were being interviewed. Norma Bell and Mary Bell, although they have the same last name, I promise there is no relation. Very odd, I know. And another fun fact, they roughly interviewed over 1,200 children I saw, which is like a shit ton of kids. And out of the 1,200... It's so many. I saw that and I was like, no way. And out of all of them, you only had two people you thought were acting funny and suspicious enough to like, well, we're going to have to keep an eye on them. (laughs) And kids are weird, man. So that's saying something. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) I guess during the questioning, Norma, who was 13 at the time, was smiling and expressed excitement at the murder story unfolding in front of her, like, with the detectives. She wouldn't react as children normally would, but she acted as though she took the story kind of for a joke. Like, it wasn't very serious to her. Mary Bell, on the other hand, acted also quite oddly and tried to be very evasive. She would kind of add her own stories to it and try to add this, like, big elaborate things, trying to almost, like, throw detectives off, which definitely confirmed their suspicions. And she added things like she saw the young child, Brian, playing with another eight-year-old boy in the area near where the accident happened. At another point in time, adding that She saw the boy hit Brian, and at another point in time, adding that the boy had a pair of scissors. This part is like a smoking gun to detectives, because that was a piece of information that they did not release, and they held on to was that pair of scissors found near Brian's body. So she literally said she saw this boy with a broken pair of scissors. So this is like a red flag to them, obviously. That's something Mary knew on her own. And just, side note, the boy she pointed to in the neighborhood and, like, and pinpointed was actually had an alibi and was gone all day with his family of Brian's murder. So that was verified by outside sources. She basically just, like, nailed her own coffin at that point by saying, 
hey, this boy did it. He had the scissors. You know, I saw this other kid with the scissors, yada, yada, yada. And they're like, okay, we already confirmed that that kid has an alibi. She knows about the scissors. How would she know that they're scissors? Exactly. So, huge red flag. And honestly, I was a little surprised the police didn't act right away. But they really wanted to make sure, as you said, the nail in the coffin. They wanted to make sure they could nail it all the way around. (laughs) So, although... Mary had become their number one suspect. suspect. They wanted to hold off before acting on it and and kind of blowing it. So then comes the time for Brian's funeral and the police watch for any odd behaviors, which you and I both know is very common in many homicide investigations. So common. Yeah. (laughs) So Mary is outside of Brian's home when they brought out the coffin and she's observed smiling and like rubbing her hands together. And I almost, and I don't know if you can picture this. I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because this is going to be my analogy. If you've ever watched like a cheesy bad movie where there's like a villain and they're like laughing and smiling and rubbing their hands together while plotting, that's like literally how they describe Mary. (laughs) Like, all kids' movies. Like, any villain in a Disney movie, just, like, with their sinister laugh and just rubbing their hands together. And every article, every report I could find, that's how Mary's described. Sometimes laughing, sometimes just smiling. And it was very clear this was, like, exciting for her. So, finally, the police are like, okay, we have to do something because, obviously, this is not a good look. So, they decided to re-interview Norma the other girl, and she is really good friends with Mary. So they're hoping they could get some information at this point. When Norma was questioned, she told detectives everything she knew. (laughs) And what she knew was a lot of secrets about Mary and how the murder of Brian was committed. After Mary had killed Brian, she took Norma there to see his body And Mary described how she squeezed Brian's neck until he stopped breathing and that she liked it. There are also reports that Norma was present when Mary killed Brian, but I couldn't tell 100% which one was accurate. Uh, It does say she returned to the scene where his body was and they mutilated his body together, supposedly, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Obviously, police arrested Mary right away. Mary denied it, and she pointed the finger at Norma, saying everything, you know, was her fault. And due to the lack of evidence, both girls are arrested and set to stand trial at this point. During this time, the police searched for more evidence, in which they found some that would definitely be pretty helpful. Those... Written notes by Mary confessing to the murder of other children or murder of Martin that were left in the nursery that during her her interview, Mary confessed to prior to trial. So Mary did say she had broken into that school and she her and Norma wrote those notes together. Actually, both girls confessed that. There were other children also that came forward and had witnessed and heard 
Mary yelling and pointing to the house where Martin was killed, saying, I'm a murderer, and that's where I killed. Really interesting to note that they didn't come forward prior to that, uh, you know, in between Martin and Brian's deaths, or murders, I should say. But I guess Mary had a reputation of lying, and so a lot of people didn't believe her, uh, any of her classmates that she had made those comments to. Guards would also later come forward that while she was confined awaiting trial, they heard her say very strange things like, I like hurting little things that can't fight me back. Which is uh, sickening, I guess I'll say. So we know obviously the crimes of what happened. And now I want to talk a little bit about Mary and her history. In 1986, during the year of these crimes, Mary Bell had just turned 11 years old when the killings took place. The murder of Martin happened just a day or two before her 11th birthday, actually. She had become obsessed with killing and had finally decided to act upon it. She was born Mary Flora Bell on May 26, 1957. Just a side note, that makes her a Gemini. I looked it up. Don't know. Oh my God. (laughs) Don't know if that has anything to do with this, but I will say it's interesting when we talk about later on and, and Gemini and, and yeah, it was just interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I also, (laughs) because this is how crazy I am (laughs) that I actually have started looking up the horoscopes for every episode we've covered recently. Well, I say every episode. Ryan Poston, I said that right. Poston. Poston. Ju- yeah, Poston that we just covered. Uh, he was a Capricorn, so oh, <laughs> I wrote that down. <laughs> that's funny. That's a good tidbit, though. So I'm I'm gonna do better trying to stay on that because I'm very curious if there's like anything applicable, like if it actually matters they say it does they say it matters this is true (laughs) so ever since mary was very little she was always described as intelligent manipulative and aggressive she would develop that habit of lying from a very young age One time in kindergarten, Mary tried to squeeze a classmate's throat by wrapping her hands around it. So she clearly had signs of being physically violent. I also saw a couple reports stating that a few months or maybe like six weeks or so before the first murder of Martin, that there were a couple children that came forward to their parents who then went to the police of Mary either attempting to choke them or threatening them or whatever had happened. And the police had a conversation with Mary and that was kind of it. So there was definitely some violence in her background. She wasn't just extremely violent and angry with strangers. She often was described that way in her own home. Her mother suffered from FDIA, which is a factitious disorder imposed on another. It's also known as Munchausen syndrome. And at first I was like, wait, I know what that is. And I had to dig to find it because whatever first article I read didn't describe it as Munchausen syndrome. 
however it is described, it's not like Betty was trying to cure Mary. She was convinced that something was wrong with her. And anytime she would just really try to use it to get more attention for herself. In fact, uh, when Mary was born, she was told, Betty told the doctors to get that thing away from me. And it's like a quote in multiple articles about that. She was eager to give Mary away to family members any chance she got. At one point, Betty even gave Mary away to a woman who was denied adoption. But Betty's sister, who had followed her, actually was able to rescue Mary and bring her back home before the woman could take her away. Due to all of these things, by the age of two, Mary was very detached and silent. Betty was a known prostitute and drug addict who had had Mary at the age of about 16 or 17. She was known to often overdose Mary to keep her asleep for long periods of time. And according to others, she also offered Mary to her clients at just the young ages of four or five for sexual acts. I will say this was not elaborated on and it was neither confirmed nor denied by Mary's family ever at any point in time. So there's no further information on that. But it does appear that from a very young age, Mary was being sexually assaulted. She was reportedly very accident prone, supposedly falling out of windows or things like that, where Betty would then receive that attention and help for caring for her. Obviously, nowadays, that's a sign of abuse in the home, uh, but at the time it wasn't. Another event that shaped Mary was when she was very young, about five, she had to witness one of her own friends being run over by a bus and killed. And so all these things compiling together definitely shaped a very traumatic early childhood for Mary. This is just to paint a picture. It's not to like justify Mary's actions by any means. I always want to emphasize that because our stories aren't about Mary or the the serial killer. It's about the victims and them getting justice in some short, sort of fashion. You can feel sympathy for Mary and, and what she went through as a victim, but it doesn't mean you can't be upset about her crimes is kind of how I look at it. So then we come upon the trial here that the girls were awaiting. And like I said before, both of them are kind of just pointing the fingers at each other <laughs> during investigation and pre-trial. And they're still speaking very fondly of each other. Like, they're still friends. And it was very strange. So this actually caused the court to do a psychological exam. My guess is that's one of many reasons <laughs> in these instances it it makes sense to do a psychological exam. Maybe not in, in this time period, but to me it would make sense. Psychologists would later label Mary as a psychopath or exhibiting symptoms of psychopathy. Psycho, yeah, psychopathy. <laughs> Psychopathy. <laughs> I don't know. Big medical words just don't make sense. <laughs> well, in the trial, it became very clear that Mary Bell was the culprit. 
Norma was an unwilling participant by her friend after the fact. And although she covered for her and didn't seem to mind it too much, Norma would be acquitted. On the same day Norma is acquitted, December 17th, 1968, Mary was actually convicted of both murders in line with the law of diminished responsibility. The judge expressed how she was a threat to other children and therefore she would be in prison at Her Majesty's pleasure. Uh, that is a legal term to describe the indefinite and undetermined length. Just a fun note, due to her mental health diagnosis and she was seen as having that diminished capacity, she was essentially convicted of manslaughter and not murder. And I say a fun note. I don't think it's a very fun note. Uh, I think it's kind of fucked up, but... It is pretty fucked up. The story for Mary does not end there. <laughs> and like I said, the, the story is for the victims. So I, I do want to tell the rest of this part about Mary because I read a very interesting quote from one of the victim's mothers. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, and I think it's very prominent to talk about how the rest of Mary's life has gone. In 1977, September that year, just nine years in her stay in prison, Mary Bell escaped from Moore Court Open Prison. I think she was being transferred or was awaiting transfer from the Young Offender Institution to like an adult prison when she had officially become an adult. Uh, she was caught within, like, two days, I believe, and sent back to prison. But despite her record and her escape, Mary was released in 1980 after only serving 12 years. At this time, she was 23. Not only that, she was also granted anonymity to hide her identity and give her a chance to start a new life. And start a new life she did. Mary proceeded to get married, and four years after her release, she gave birth to a daughter in May of 1984. She moved around a lot, and she was changing this to avoid getting known or staying too long for people to discover who she was. I read one report that she's changed her identity three times and moved five times. Uh, not sure how accurate that was, and I'm not sure how recent that statistic was on her. In 1998, some reporters discovered where she was and showed up at her home. The couple inside left in a hurry, covering their faces to avoid being seen. But up until this point, Mary's daughter had no idea of her mother's past, and she was about 14 at this time. It was soon exposed by reporters who Mary was, and her daughter found out. After this, Mary was extremely worried about her daughter's identity also being revealed by reporters. It was protected until she was 18, but Mary did not feel like this would be enough. And so she appealed to court to protect her daughter's identity for life, and she actually won on May 21st, 2003. Both women were granted lifelong anonymity. Not only that, this case like that Mary took to the high court 
would become law, and it's now known as the Mary Bell Order in British courts to grant lifelong protection to anyone. In January of 2009, this was also updated to add Mary Bell's granddaughter that was born. To this day, no one knows where Mary Bell lives and what the assumed identity she is living under. The quote I wanted to talk about was from, I believe, Martin Brown's mother. And basically had talked about how, you know, she'll never have grandchildren from her son. Mary took that from her. And she's left with nothing but grief ever since then. And Mary has been allowed to live her life. And by all accounts, be a good mother and a good grandmother, despite her murderous, heinous history. Which is wild to me. <laughs> it's pretty a pretty uh, sad case, to say the least. And I think that that victim's mother definitely has a point. Absolutely. And I saw... There are other cases where this has happened, where they're granted lifelong anonymity after doing something heinous as a child or under the age of 18. I also want to add the UK is not the only one that does this. Canada does this. And I know that for a fact. Yeah, there's a lot like surprisingly a lot of countries like that's not uncommon in because, you know, I'll let you finish what you want to say and I'll go on a tangent on it. But, like, it's no, a very I want your tangent. bizarre, like, thing that these countries do. Like, but they carry on and let them live their lives. I'm kind of torn because I know the U.S. Uh, US system and, and jail and court system, it's not set up for rehabilitation as it should be. It's, it's set up to... You know, instead of giving people second chances and new opportunities, it's set up for failure quite often. So oh, yeah, on one sure. hand, I want to look at it as like, okay, well, these people are are given another chance to rehabilitate themselves and and reassess and reenter society. But on another hand, I understand you're 11, but you served 12 years. Like, it's a. I think it's a little bit. I think that there needs to be like a middle point. So like. Obviously, between what the states, you know, the rehabilitation isn't really necessarily happening here to the extent that it should be. I do not think, though, that you should be given a new name and a new identity and, like, off with the silver spoon in your mouth to go live your life like nothing happened. And being granted that protection where you can have a whole new identity and that it is so protected within the government makes it seem like it is okay. And, like, that you have this opportunity. It just seems a little bit, like, too much. There should be a center point. Like, you served your time. You got all this treatment. You did all these things. You know, maybe we can give you a whole new name. But, like, if that name gets released, it is what it is. Like, it's not like the government's out here protecting you. And, like, going to whole new levels to give you brand new identities every other year. Correct. And that's, I think, the... The part that rubs me the wrong way. And obviously I get, you know, for her daughter and granddaughter, they're innocent victims, uh, in my opinion, at least. You know what I mean? Like, we don't know what they've done or who they are or their characteristics. Obviously, if they were murderers, they would have been tried. But hopefully. Uh, but 
I don't know. So I get it in that aspect to like protecting them and, and not having their lives ruined because of this. But at the same time, it feels almost a bit much that you're protecting this person who murdered two innocent children, like very young, below school age children for fun. Like that that's what it was. It was for fun. Yeah. And especially and you're like protecting to- her more than those victims. And that's, I guess, the biggest, like, what I was going to say next is, like, you know, to look at it from the flip side, like, there's some things that they do for, like, to help the victim's families in terms of, like, you know, they're not, those no-contact orders or things of that nature, but they're not going in and changing their full names or, like, protecting them to the same levels, at least not that we hear about if it is taking place. Correct, yeah. So, I'm... I definitely felt some type of way about it, yeah. And it's actually, I can't think of the case. I've been sitting here trying to think. But I know, so you said Canada. And there's, like, another, there's a bigger case in, like, Canada or another big case in the UK. And that person, like, I think it was a Netflix thing that I watched. But it was, like, they're protected forever. And, like, nobody knows who the hell they are. Which is also, like. There's another big one in the UK where it was the murder of James Bolger and he was a young child two years old who was killed in England by two 10 year old boys and those 10 year old boys are now because they were under the age of 18 they are now released and their identities are also protected for the rest of their lives in Canada, I saw, there's one, I listened to a podcast, and I've actually heard the story a couple times, of these, I think they're twins, that killed their mom, or maybe they were a year or two apart, and they were- Yeah, the I think that's what I'm thinking and of. once they were released, they went on to live their lives, and they're out there somewhere under new identities. I think that's, like, almost the-, the s- scariest for lack of a better term part of it is like that they're like strangers among us like there might be somebody and I mean this happens like all the time I feel like or not all the time but like more common than you would think where you know somebody but it's like you don't actually know that person and it's like this person has this crazy deep secret that you're probably not going to get out of them when they're drunk either which is correct but I feel like in this modern age we have like background checks and stuff like that that can easily protect you obviously Mm -hmm. I've never been someone that I say obviously I have never been someone that runs background checks on someone I'm dating I know people who have (laughs) but I also like when I used to work in office I worked for financial institutions that usually do background checks and so Obviously, there are certain things that are acceptable on your background check, but I definitely don't want to be finding out that I'm working with certain characters of people convicted of certain crimes in that environment. You know what I mean? And not being notified, I guess. But then that's also protection and all of that. Yeah. So it's like like a double-edged sword, but then these people don't, (laughs) I guess jobs might not know and like employees might not know but then is that discrimination I don't know well and that's one of those things too like you know it's not like they're just going and changing their name by themselves you know that they would have to include like their alias on their background check I don't think that if you get granted this that you have to include that name because like that's what I for yeah like for your actual protection like 
you were granted this, like the government's on your side. It's not like, you know, I have an alias. I'm now going by, I don't know. I 100% get what you're saying. And I work in like the financial, like for financial institutions, for example. So obviously they're not hiring anyone with like embezzlement or (laughs) those kinds of crimes that have to do with like finance crimes. They would never, they don't hire people with those kinds of backgrounds. But I think there's also a line. And when the government is actively like giving you a new identity, to allow you to kind of live your life and and no one might know. I mean, Mary's husband could have married her and had no idea who she was. We don't we don't know. Which I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. Correct. It's it's just wild. I do want to add if you don't have anything else to mention on that. I do not. Okay. So, I was actually really happy that you um picked this case because I know this case. And this is actually one of, like, the first things that I feel like got me into true crime. Or, like, I was super intrigued by true crime, like, way back in the day. Yeah. So, I used to watch, um, and I actually recently, which is is also funny, not this episode, but I used to watch Deadly Women all the time with um, my mom. I feel like that's, like, the, one of the ID Network, like, original shows from, like... 2009 2008 (laughs) way back when and like she still has episodes but not the same and this is like one of like the most vivid episodes that I remember is on Mary Bell interesting I did not even pay attention to see what shows and stuff she's on I know there are two books that have been written about her and a third that is very controversial because she gave her opinion on and got paid for it, which you're not supposed to be doing. So it was really big tabloid news. But uh, I didn't see it. I saw that there was at least a Law & Order episode from, like, 1999 is based off of her. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was really... I didn't see any other big names of shows that I was familiar with. So... Thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> There's definitely a Deadly Woman episode on it. But she's a, she's just an interesting character all around. I did read, and this was kind of, this might have been your uh, book that you're referencing where she, you know, got paid for it or whatever, too. But, like, there's a, a famous, um, a few famous mentions that were listed, like, of her claiming that she doesn't think she was wrongly convicted and her kind of, like, freely admitting that, like, the abuse that she suffered was not really an excuse for her crimes which I thought was interesting because you you don't always hear that being the case yeah usually people want to make excuses for what they did if they admit it openly and that's kind of surprising that she was just like it is what it is kind of thing also I just looked up the deadly women episode came out in 2009 dead on Yeah, you guessed that you're pretty accurately. (laughs) Dead on. Because I knew I was, like, an eighth grade or, like, a freshman in high school or something. Um, That's funny. I, my freshman year, read, uh, in high school, read Helter Skelter and became obsessed with the Manson murders. And that is how I got into true crime. (laughs) And just a little side note, I remember specifically being at my midterms in high school 
And we did it where like you were in your, you know, you'd have first and second period midterms the one day and then third and fourth the next day. And so I remember being in the classroom and you're stuck in there for like an hour and a half, even if you finish. And so you could sleep or you could read. They didn't even let you do any other studying in case you're bringing out stuff about the class. And so I remember sitting in my English class reading Helter Skelter and I went to a private Catholic high school and my English teacher looked at me and was like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> I'll never it's forget that. That's, that's a moment that's engraved in my brain. <laughs> that's a good moment. I didn't understand what was wrong. <laughs> that's usually how those moments go, too. I don't feel like I'm in the wrong here. <laughs> Agreed. Was there anything else you wanted to add? No, I think that that was, you know, pretty much it. It's definitely an interesting one. It's yeah. definitely a sad I had, one. I knew a little bit about Mary Bell and the case, obviously. I never knew that there was another young girl involved. No, uh, I don't think I knew really that either. That was interesting to me. And I think it also was really difficult because it's never clear what her involvement really is. Yeah. So we don't know how much she truly was involved. and. That's a little scary, but uh, hopefully, I know 12 years isn't very long, but hopefully that was some sort of justice and they got answers right away for that family. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now that we got this heavy one out of the way. <laughs> I know, right? Now that I need to go lay down now. You want to bring us back up with some jokes and facts here? Yes. What do you want first? Uh, let's do it. Let's do joke first. Okay, okay. So I'm going to ask you a question. You can answer the question, and then you need to ask me the same question back, okay? Okay. Burritos or tacos? Burritos. Okay. Okay. Burritos or tacos? You've got me stuck between a guac and a hard place. (laughs) (laughs) I hate you. I was like, where is she going with this? <laughs> That's why I thought it would be funny because I was like, she's gonna, you're gonna be like, what the fuck? <laughs> what are you trying to do? That's so funny. <laughs> Guac in a hard place. I like that. Kind of mixed up a little bit, but I thought it was clever. It was, it was a punny. It was punny. I liked that one. That was a good one. Yes. <laughs> All right, hit me with the fact. So, a California burrito has french fries in it. At Roberto's Taco Shop in the 1980s, the idea was suggested suggested to add french fries to a burrito to make the dish heartier. Interesting. Do you have Del Taco by you? So, uh, we don't. At oh. least not, like, near <laughs> me. But I've had it by you guys. Okay, and they so... they have the fries. Yeah, I was going to say, Del Taco has, like, a California burrito. And they have fries in them. <laughs> hey, there you go. <laughs> so, I think they don't call it a California anymore. It might be, like, some sort of epic Californian burrito. But I think California's in there still. Okay, okay. Yeah, no, we, we don't have it. Because we have, like, a... the 80s. Dang. Yeah. I like to see, like, where the things pop up at. I think that's interesting. Yeah. I feel like most of the stuff came within the past, like, 30 years, which is really intriguing to me. Like, Absolutely. But it is what it is. Well, 
I'm going to think about that next time I order Del Taco. <laughs> Get you a, a Californian burrito. <laughs> I'm weird because there's also has like avocado, I think. And I like avocado, but not in my burritos. And I like guac on the side most of the time. Okay. I think that's valid. <laughs> I'm I'm weird, I know. <laughs> I feel like... I feel like avocado is more of, I don't think I've ever had it in just a burrito. Like, I've had, like, guacamole, like, in a burrito or on the side of a burrito or something Yeah, but like it's that. weird with, but it's, like, just... But I think just avocado by itself is a little... It's different. weird. Avocado on, like, a chicken sandwich? Bomb. But, like, yes, you know... Yes, 100%. Some bacon, something like that? For sure. But I don't know. I guess I'm with you on that. I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah, maybe I'll maybe I'll try their California burrito anyways. We'll see. <laughs> I'll let you know if I do. <laughs> Keep me updated. Keep me updated. For sure, for sure. Uh and then <laughs> I'm sure Sydney's gonna laugh when I go on my my mini rant before we go into where you can find us. But this is just a <laughs> reminder <laughs> for anyone that you know, we do have full time jobs. This is something that yes, do we enjoy doing it? Absolutely. A big part of what we do is we like to tell stories that we haven't heard quite often on other podcasts. I know Sid and I have talked about it. You don't really listen to a lot of podcasts. I do. <laughs> and listen so to a lot of reality podcasts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts. And I think a big thing is we, one, enjoy telling the stories of victims who don't get their story told very often. We don't want them to be forgotten. And two, for those cases that there isn't a lot out there. And especially for the unsolved cases, it can get really hard finding, you know, evidence and and doing our research. We absolutely do our best. We love feedback. Feel free to email us our feedback. We'll get into all of that or message it to us. And we'll actually be covering, um, like an update episode soon here for some feedback we've gotten. And it definitely happens where we find contradicting sources or misinformation online, as I'm sure everyone is aware, you can only vet your sources so much and and try to cross-reference so much online and still find misinformation. So we definitely want to get the right information out there. If you are involved in a case or know something or have a better resource, please send it our way because we would definitely love to give updates if we give incorrect information out there. Anything else to add to that, Sid? (laughs) No, I think that was very well put. You know, if you have a better source, if you are a better source, any feedback, anything like that, like we're here to get that feedback we want that feedback we want to do those updates if you want to come in and tell your side of the story I would love that you just have to let me know absolutely and we talk about it all the time that we would like guest speakers too so yeah you know if you are involved in a true crime case like in some way shape or form and you want your family or friend their story to be told we would love to be that platform to give you and you know give you the opportunity to tell their story and hopefully help help you get their voice heard. Yeah, that'd be awesome. In the meantime, you can find us on Facebook, Tacos and Tequila Podcast. Like I said, you can message us off Facebook and uh, we'll get that right away. <laughs> or on Instagram at just Tacos and Tequila. Same thing. Slide in the DMs. I'm always there waiting for them. 
A hundred percent. Sydney is in the Instagram DMs. I'm really bad on Instagram. <laughs> I'm just always on Instagram. Okay, it has nothing to do <laughs> with like people sliding in the DMs. I'm always watching Instagram lives. Okay. We literally just talked about this yesterday, Peyton. I'm always watching Instagram lives, and then I get a notification. I'm like, oh, let me go back to this. Meanwhile, I'm wondering how I can shut off those notifications of people going live or posting new reels. Like, I don't care. I live for those. I live for those. It's like, this person went live, bet. Be there in five seconds. And then taking screenshots. That also. Of their, of their sprites in their fridge. <laughs> At Nick Carter. <laughs> At Nick Carter. <laughs> okay, uh, okay, let's carry on. <laughs> you can also find our website, tacosandtequiliapodcast.com, has links to all our episodes as well as all our sources that we utilize and summaries of each episode. And if you're li- listening on Apple Podcasts and or Spotify, go leave a five-star rating. Let us know what you think. If you have any feedback, something to work on something to fix something you want us to talk about something you love whatever it is send us a message on one of those other platforms so we can chat about it yes because we love feedback Sid and I just talked about this today outside of the podcast uh you know good or bad feedback we want it but we would much appreciate it more directly in a private setting uh so we can we can do better and be better Yes, exactly. Perfect. Retweet. (laughs) Well, I think that's all I've got, Sid. How about you? I think that's it. Sweet. Well, we will talk to you folks next week then. Bye. Bye. Ha 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 ha!